false to the Romans. A few weeks ago, we, we looked at verses 1 and 2. You know, one in, verses 1 and 2 are the key to the rest of the book. Uh, there in verse 1, when Paul says that, Therefore I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God. And Paul's talking about everything that he has said from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11. Everything that he has shown us that, that uh, our, our depravity and sin and how we had no hope and how God sent Christ to justify us and everything that we have no condemnation now that we're in Christ. And, and all these things, Paul says, in light of all of that, here's what you need to do. Present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove, approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. So everything that Paul has said up to this point, Paul says, so here's what you need to do. And then Paul says... In light of what I just told you in verses 1 and 2 to do, of course, Paul didn't say verses 1 and 2 because, you know, they weren't there. But Paul says for the rest of this letter, he said, if you do this, this is what it will look like. This is how you will look. And we already looked at verses 3 through 8, uh, you know, where Paul talks about, how we are to not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Uh, in another place, he says we are to look on the things of others more than the things of our own. And, and we are to take the gifts that God has given to us. Whatever uh, gift God has given you, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has gifted you with a spiritual gift, which is to be used in the service of the church. And so Paul is saying, here's, here's what... Presenting your bodies to Christ looks like being totally committed to him. And so the thrust here in, in verses 9 through 21, the thrust of this text is how do we who are committed to Christ and have our minds renewed love? How do we love? Now, let, let, let's back up. In John, Jesus said to his disciples, and, and it applies to you and I as well, by this will all men know you are my disciples, when you have love one for another. In another place, he told them, also in John, he said, love one another as I have loved you. Now, do you love me like Christ loves me? Well, thank you. <laughs> Do you want to? Okay. It's a tall order. How do I love like Christ loves? But you see, that's what Paul's getting at here when he says, present yourselves to Christ. Give yourself to him wholeheartedly. Then you can love like he loves. Because it is Christ in me. Loving through me. And so, Paul here specifically, he says, how do we love those who are in the church? And how do we love those who are in the world? Look at verse, uh, verse 9. Paul says, let love be without hypocrisy. 
by abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good, being devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in affliction, being devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, pursuing hospitality. So Paul here, first of all, he says, as I have given myself to Christ and presented my body as a living sacrifice, one of the things, one of the, the signs of that, the evidence of that is I will love you and you will love me. We will love one another. What would Jesus say? By this will all men know you're my disciples when you have love one for another. So we see here love in the church. And Paul begins with this all-important statement about the quality of love that is to be in the church. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. <clears throat> we all heard the word hypocrite, right? You know what a hypocrite is? Do you know what a, another word for hypocrite is? Actor. An actor, it's someone who pretends to be something they're not. And Paul says, let your love be without hypocrisy. So what he's saying is, let my love be genuine. Don't let my love be something that it's really not. Don't let it appear to be something that it's really not. And, you know, the world's way of love is like this. I love you as long as you do what I agree with. As long as you do what I want you to do. As long as you never hurt me. But Christian love is not like that. Christian love says, I love you. Period. I love you. And so Paul says, let it be without hypocrisy. Let it be genuine. The word for love here is the word agape. You know, the word agape, that, that is a love that is a God kind of love. Only God possesses that kind of love. And that's the word, the Greek word that Paul uses here. It's a God-like love that loves regardless of circumstances. It's a deliberate love. It's the kind of love that, that, that I look at you and say, I am going to love you. Whether you like it or not, regardless of what you do, regardless of what you don't do, regardless of whether you love me back. Is that not the kind of love God has shown to us? It's a deliberate kind of love. It's an on purpose kind of love. Our love is to be genuine. It is not to be counterfeit. Uh, th th this simple statement is so foundational to Christian conduct. Because our culture encourages us to live an image. You know, image is everything in the world. It's not who you are, it's who they think you are that matters. But is that true? You know, it, it, that, that reminds me of what Jesus said when he said, Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And you know something, folks? I can put on... And act before you. I can make you think that I'm somebody I'm, not, I'm really not. We can all do that. As a matter of fact, we all do that to a degree. But I want to tell you something, folks. God knows who I am. 
He knows who you are. You may fool me. I may fool you, but we don't fool God. But Paul says, look, you want to tell you, you want me to tell you how to not love that way? You want me to show you how to love with a genuine love and not a hypocritical love? He says, present your bodies a living sacrifice because of what God has done. All right. The media, uh, you know, it, it repeatedly presents us, you know, this, this is, you all know what came into my mind when I wrote the words right here in my notes. The media repeatedly presents us with people pretending to be something they're not. You understand that? I'm a man. Was born a man, will always be a man. You know, I heard a preacher say one time, he said, how many, t how many legs would a dog have if you called the dog's tail, a leg. And somebody said, five. He said, no, he'd only have four because you can call the tail whatever you want, but it's still a tail. But the media, but so, so Paul here is telling us to go completely, that we are to be completely opposite of what the world does. We are to go, we, we deceive ourselves into thinking that we have love for people that we don't even like. And Paul tells us that we must go beyond pretense. It must be a sincere love. And if we obey verses 1 and 2, then our love will be without hypocrisy. This is not optional. 1 Peter 4, 8, Peter says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. First Timothy 1.5, Paul says, But the goal of our command is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and an unhypocritical faith. Love is what characterizes you and I as believers. But it's a genuine love. It's not a false love. It's not the kind of love that causes me to lie to you because that's not love. That's why Paul says we are to always speak the truth, but we are to speak the truth in love. And so as, as believers, one of the things that characterize us is love. And this is a call to honestly examine our hearts and ask the question, do I love others, especially those in the church without hypocrisy? Do we? Do we truly love in this way? And having established now that love is the foundation for Christian act, action, Paul now tells us in verses 9 through 13 that we see love's morality. Look at the last part of verse 9. He says, by abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good. I want to tell you something, folks. If you love, you also must hate. All right. If you love God, if you love me, if, you, if I love you, if we love one another, we will hate that which is evil. We will hate sin. Why are we to hate evil? Why are we to hate sin? I mean, what does what is what is it about sin that 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 should cause me to hate it? You may tell you what it is. It separates you from God. That's what it is. 
It separates us from God. And so therefore we should hate anything that would separate us. So we see love's morality. Evil is to be hated. Sincere love demands a God-honoring moral resolve regarding good and evil. True love hates sin. And I want to tell you something, folks. It is not hate for you to stand in the public arena and say, that is sin. That's love. <clears throat> but we must stand there and say, that is sin. And it will kill you. Until you turn from it and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. True love hates sin. Next, Paul mentions love's commitment to the church. Look at verse 10. He says, being devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor. It's a family type devotion to one another, and, and it's more than friendship. Listen, this is the kind of relationship you and I in the church must have with one another. And it's one like this. I have a mother. And I should love Laura just like I do my own mother. I have a brother. I should love Tim just like I do. My own brother should not come before anybody here. We are to love one another that way. As a matter of fact, I will go so far as to tell you like this. I, I have three brothers. Well, I have two left. One's died. They don't know the Lord. Roger, you're more my brother than they are. You're going to be with me for eternity. If they die in that sin, they will never, I will never see them ever again. So we are, it's more than just being friends with one another. We are to have a love relationship. And such love uh, involves commitment like that experienced in good families. Healthy families have a mutual respect for one another. They have a genuine love for one another. You know, growing up, I fought with my brothers. You know, here was the thing, and I found this to be true in most families. I would fight with my brothers tooth and nail, but you better leave them alone. You understand how that works? And that's how we should see one another. And that's what Paul is saying. He says, being devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor. This is how it ought to be within the church. Love heightens family commitment and family joy. Just imagine, just imagine what, what kind of a church we would have if we truly loved one another to this degree. If we obeyed what Christ said in loving one another as he has loved us. Just imagine what we would be. Love heightens the family commitment and there's family joy. You know, I always said that Thanksgiving was an interesting time of year. Because there are many people who are thankful that they get to see family they don't get to see but once a year. There are many people who are thankful that they will see family they only have to see once a year. And I have found that many believers are the same way. But Paul says, let your love be genuine. And he challenges us with love's energetic expression there in verse 11 and 12. He said, not lagging behind in diligence. 
being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in affliction, being devoted to prayer. Fervent love calls for our best. But I want to tell you something, folks. Fervent love will cost you something. It's costly. True love labors. It works for the benefit of others. Now, again, let's think about what kind of a church we would be if I, as your pastor, if everything I did, not just in the, in, the, in the workings of being a pastor, but I mean everything in my life. If Cindy and I were going to buy a new car, I should stop and say, how will this affect the people in that church? And people say, well, that's none of their business. Yes, it is. Did you not know that everything that I do is your business. Everything you do is my business. Now, I don't want to know the intimate details of your private life. You don't need to know mine. But I want to tell you this. If I am living secretly in sin, it's your business. Because it will affect you. If you are living secretly in sin, it's my business because it affects me. And, and when you have this, when we love one another with a fervency that he calls for here, this fervent love that will cost us something, true love works for the benefit of others. <clears throat> Do you ever stop and think in your life, when you wake up tomorrow morning, Monday morning, and think, what today can I make it a point to do in my life that will benefit the family of God that I'm a part of in that local church. Do we even think about that? Do you think Jesus thought about that? Do you think Jesus, when he was taken and he was arrested and he was beaten within an inch of his life and his face was just torn all to pieces, they tore his beard out, they put a crown of thorns on him, do you think that he ever said, you know, I'm not sure these people are worth this? Do you think he ever said that? You think he even thought that? No, it never crossed his mind. And when they took him and they nailed him to a cross for six hours and he was hanging there naked and in shame and, and, and such suffering. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He looked over here and said, I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. It never crossed his mind. What is the goal of our salvation? Do you remember this? Listen, salvation is not about you. If you think your salvation is about you, you've misunderstood. Our salvation is about the glory of God. And do you know what's going to bring God the ultimate glory? Is when I am like Christ. That's the goal. But it's not that one day I will be like Christ. It's that right now I should be like Christ. Now, ultimately, I will be like him in the glorified state. But what Paul's saying is, look, if you have given yourself to Christ and you have uh, presented your bodies as a living sacrifice, it will show in the way that you love one another in the church. <clears throat> in verse 13, he tells us that uh, loves care. He says, contributing to the needs of the saints, pursuing hospitality. Now, let me tell you something. When you contribute, that is something you voluntarily do. 
When you pursue something, that's something you do on purpose. We've been talking about that in our holiness study on Wednesday nights, that we are to pursue holiness. It's intentional. And Paul says that our cares for our brothers and sisters in Christ should reach right down. Okay, now don't throw anything at me. It should reach right down into your wallet. People say, well, I work hard for my money. You know, James talks about this. He says, you, you know, your, your brother or sister comes to you and they say, you know what? I'm paraphrasing. He says, I'm hungry. I can't pay my rent, can't pay my car payment and this. And you have a wallet full of money. And James says, you look at him and you say, hey, brother, I'm going to pray for you. Be good. God will take care of this. He, James says, you know what you've done? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. He says, if you have the means to meet that need, you should meet it. And whether it, whether it involves money, whether it involves your time, whether it involves your talents, no matter what it is, uh, Paul says that we are to care for one another. And Paul presents this not as a sacrifice, but as a privilege. As a privilege to do this. You know, I'll never forget one of the most um, convicting moments in my life. <clears throat> I was pastoring a church over in uh, Princeton, Texas. And there was this man there that lived in the community, and he would come to church. You know, he was kind of like a Christmas Easter kind of person. But he was constantly, whenever anything, he, I would go to visit with him. I would try to talk to him. He wanted nothing to do with it. He said, I don't want to hear this, don't want to do it. He said, the only reason I come to church on Easter is because my mom goes there and she makes me go. Now, here's a 40-year-old man, but his mom makes him go to church. But he told me, he said, I don't want to hear what you have. I don't want what you have to offer. Just leave me alone. So I did. Until he called me one day and said, hey, I'm in jail and I sure need somebody to bail me out. Or until he said, called me and said, you know, uh, I've got a job opportunity, but I don't have any gas money. Or until the day he called and said, you know, I'm tired of the drugs. I want to get off of them. Please come over here and save me. And he didn't realize what he was saying when he said that. But you know what he meant. And he used to aggravate me. And I would say, you know, the only time this guy ever wants anything from me is when he's in trouble. And it would, it would, it would bother me until I was talking with this older preacher. And I was telling him about it. And he said, son... He said, be thankful you are the light that shines in his darkness. And go and be there for him. And we're going to talk about this more here in just a minute. But the but, but point that I'm making is, Paul says that we are to love and count it a privilege to do it. Not a sacrifice. So Paul, there, there he tells us how we are to love one another in the church. And, you know, our love is to be genuine. We are to hate that which is evil. And you realize that hating that which is evil. And I meant to mention this earlier. But let me throw it in right here so nobody misses it. Sin in the church cannot go ignored. When I was a child, my stepdad would tell me, <clears throat> you can go over here and do such and such, but you better not do this. And when I did do this, he let me know about it. 
with a belt across my rear end. And I want to tell you something. At one time, I hated that man as much as I ever hated anybody in my life. But when I became an adult, I loved him as much as I loved anybody in my life because of what his discipline taught me. You know why he did that? He, he didn't enjoy hitting me. It was obvious he did not. But he knew that if he loved me, he had to. Listen, Paul says love abhors what is evil. And there must be discipline. It must be dealt with. Uh, we, we see this over and over and over throughout the Old Testament. God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He came, made him into a nation, the Jewish nation. And you know, the, the entirety of the, New, of the Old Testament is the story of Israel time after time after time after time going after other gods and committing idolatry and God judging them for doing it. I mean, why didn't he just, after the you know fourth or fifth time, why didn't God just throw up his hands and say, you know what, I'm done with you? Because he loved them, that's why. He loved them. Peter said, Lord, if my brother sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? Seven times? Peter thought he was being generous. And Jesus said, how about 70 times seven? Now, I'm no mathematician. I don't know what 70 times 7 is. So, But you get the point. Jesus didn't mean that number. He meant as many times as you have to. You know why? Because that's what love does. How many of you have been forgiven by God 70 times 7? How many times has God ever said, okay, look, this is the last time? Never. He forgives. All right. Then in verses 14 through 21, Paul now switches his focus from the church to the world. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. By being of the same mind toward one another. Not being haughty in mind, but associating with the humble. Do not be wise in your own minds. Never paying back evil for evil to anyone. Respecting what is good in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never taking your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. So Paul now switches to how we are to love those in the world. And what we read right here needs to be interpreted from the perspective of a believer who is under pressure from an unbelieving world. Those outside the world. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. He said, they hated me. Guess what? They're going to hate you too. And that's the perspective we need to see that Paul's coming from here. These are not people that say, oh, I love those church people. No, these are the people who uh, attack us. And he, as he talks about there, he says, you know, never paying back evil for evil at all, but letting God take care of it. 
We see love in action there in verse 14. Uh, verse 14 is the way of Jesus given in the Sermon on the Mount when He says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now, isn't that how we would naturally react? No. You know what my natural reaction is when you hit me? I'm going to hit you back. What are you talking about turning the other cheek? <laughs> That's our natural reaction. But see, here's the thing. What Paul is calling us to do is not natural. It's supernatural. It's God. And it's, 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 it's evidence that I have Christ living in me. More than speaking uh, well of our enemies, it includes praying for our enemies. Do you have any enemies? Do you got anybody that doesn't like you in your family? I mean, we all do in our families, but in our family, your co-workers, your neighbors. You know, it's just constant battle with them. When was the last time you got on your knees and lifted them up to God? Let me rephrase that. Let me clarify something. I'm not talking about getting on your knees and saying, Lord, please do something about them. Get them off my back. Make them see that I'm right. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about getting on your knees, lifting them up to God and say, Lord, they need grace. They need Christ. And help me do this. Paul, that's what Paul is talking. This is, this is something. Do, do we ever see any example of that in the entire Bible? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I want to tell you something, folks. When you think about it, those out in the world that hate us for being Christians and they persecute us and they attack us, they don't know what they're doing. You remember the Apostle Paul when his name was Saul? And he was out persecuting the church. He thought he was working for God. He thought he was doing the right thing. He wasn't doing it out of hatred. He was doing it out of love for God. But he was wrong. But, but Paul says, look, these that come after us, we are to not just speak well of our enemies, but we are to pray for them. This is a life-changing call. Verse 15 says that we as believers... Uh, we are to be, believers are to be with unbelievers in the ups and downs of their life. As I went back to that guy that I told you about a while ago, uh, I, I had to learn to, to, to be grateful that I was the light that shone in his darkest hour. Because you know what that meant? That meant the light of Christ was shining through me. Now, I don't know whatever happened to that guy. Far as I know, he never got saved. But Paul says, you loved him in a Christ-like way. You see, I had to learn to go when that man needed some gas money and go give him some gas money without saying, okay, now I expect to see you in church on Sunday. That couldn't be a condition. You know what the condition was? Nothing. There was none. And that's how we are to, to look at them and to love these people. 
And so uh, the world is characterized by indifference and non-commitment and with no sharing or no caring. And then you enter the, 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 the loving believer in this who weeps with those who weeps and rejoices with those who rejoice. We are a light leading them to Christ. Remember, that's what we are here to do. We are not here to fill this church up with people. We are here as, as I have, I used to say this all the time when I first came here, and I hadn't said this in a long time. We're not here to bring people to church. We're here to bring people to Christ. He'll put them in church where he wants them. Whether it's here, whether it's cross street, whether it's somewhere else, it doesn't matter. All that matters is we bring them to Christ. And when we look at it from that perspective, you see, Jesus, time after time after time, he fought the, the religious leaders of his day. He battled with them time after time. He told them the truth, but he told them in love. You know, when he looked at them and said, look, your father's the devil. He was trying to warn them. Can you tell me any living Person in the history of the world more loving than Jesus Christ. And you know what they gave him for it? They crucified him. Jesus said, a servant is not better than his master. What they've done to me, they'll do to you. They've hated me, they're going to hate you. But we, as loving believers, we are to enter into a world that is characterized by indifference and, and, and by non-commitment. You know, I, I think about all this that's been going on in the news this, this past week with that, um, his name just went completely out of my head. Mulvaney, is that his last name? Dylan, Dylan Mulvaney. I feel sorry for that kid. His mind has been warped by evil. We shouldn't be angry at him. We should be praying for him. Not just him. I mean, who would have ever thought about putting a man on TV to advertise for a brawl? I mean, seriously, you realize how messed up that is? So he's not the only one who's in trouble. They all are. And we ought to be praying for them. We should not be standing up here saying, oh, I can't believe I wish God would just strike them dead. You know, I, I read a little cartoon the other day that this guy, he was talking to a Christian. And he says, you know, if God is so loving, why doesn't he just destroy all the evil people? And the Christian looked at him and said, because there wouldn't be anybody here. Remember that saying there, but for the grace of God, go I. Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. So Paul says that we are to love. We are to be that light that shines. And this call to love is radical. But it leads to what he says in verse 16. By being in the same mind toward one another, not being haughty in mind, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own eyes. We as Christians, we as believers, we are to associate with the ordinary people, the unimportant, the outcasts. Listen, what do you know what one of the one of the most derogatory names they was that they gave to Jesus, but he wore it like a badge of honor? Friend of sinners. You know why? Because he associated with the prostitutes. He associated with the drug dealers. He associated with the lepers. But he did not associate in a way that led them to believe he condoned it. 
He associated with them to tell them the truth. And we, you know, these are the people that we avoid. These are the people that we say, you know what, I don't want anything to do with these, these terrible people. We need to stay away from them. And Paul says, look, you have presented your bodies as a living sacrifice to Christ. And by being of the same mind toward one another, not being haughty in mind. But associating with the humble. Don't be wise in your own mind, he said. We have to have a heart that is open. Praying for those who persecute us. Exhibiting the love of Christ to the world. This is why I have said to you many times, folks, and you need to understand this. That Christ rejecting and Christ hating and Christian hating world out there needs us to be the church. You understand that? They don't know that. But they need us to be who we are claimed to be, which are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't say that we're, uh, you know, I don't want to say that we're Christians. And you know why I don't say that? Because that word has become something to mean more than what it, or something other than what it's supposed to mean. I mean, you realize Jehovah's Witnesses call themselves Christians, but they're not. The Ku Klux Klan calls themselves Christians, but they're not. We are followers of Christ. Now, when you say that, that means something. And this is what we are called to be. We are to exhibit the love of Christ to this world out there that is doing this. Paul says we are to love even when we're wronged. In verses 17 through 20, this goes against our, our conditioned response to strike back. Our natural instinct is, you know what? I'll pay you back. I don't know when, I don't know how, but I'll get even with you. You know where the focus is? It's on me. It's on me. But there's a better way, and it's God's way. And that is two, there are two elements to this. One is trust God. Verse 19, he says, never taking your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Let me ask you something, folks. Do you trust God? Seriously, do you trust him? Do you believe that God is sovereign over this universe? That God ordains all things? Then let me tell you something. You may walk out those doors right now, and there may be a group of Christ-rejecting, Christian-hating people mob you and beat you within an end of your life, maybe even kill you. But you know they couldn't do that if God hadn't said they could. And we say, well, I don't understand that. Why would God let that happen? I don't know. But Paul's already asked us once, you know, who are you, old man, to answer back to God? But we must trust God to work in the life of those who's wronged us, leaving the vengeance to God. God's wrath may one day come in judgment to those who abuse us, but his wrath may come and may bring enemies to repentance in this life. And isn't that what we should want? Regardless of who they are, how they treat us, or how they act, what color they are, where they're from, or anything. Our ultimate goal is, we want to see you come to know Jesus Christ. And that's all that matters. 
And that's what Paul says. He's, and see, our focus shifts. When we present ourselves a living sacrifice because of everything God has done for us, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, making us alive in Christ, when we didn't deserve it, we didn't merit it, He just did it because He's simply God. And we look and say, you know what, I want the same thing for you. I want the same thing for that person out there that, that, that abuses me and, and, and mocks me and all of this. I want to see them come to know Christ and come to repentance. So we are to trust God. And the second thing we are to do, we are to do good. In doing good to our enemies, Paul says, we will heap burning coals upon their heads. Now that ought to give us a little bit of satisfaction. To know that when someone wrongs me, that I'm going to do good to them. And I'm just going to have that shovel just piling that hot coals on top of their head. So they'll get what they got coming. But that's the wrong attitude. You see, those hot coals that Paul talks about putting on top of their heads, <clears throat> they may be contrition that helpfully, not surely, but hopefully will bring them to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. To be saved. You know, David, David and Saul are a perfect example of this. Saul was king. He, he finally came to the realization that God had called David to be king. And Saul began to hate David. And he hunted David like a wild animal. He chased him all over the country. David hiding in caves, doing all this. But you know, there were several... Where David had the opportunity to kill Saul. But he wouldn't do it. He said no. He said far be it from me to touch the head of God's anointed. He said God called me to be king. And when God wants me to be king I'll be king. When God's ready for me to be king. And David just kept piling on this, the, 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 the coals on Paul's head. On Saul's head. And I want to read you what Saul says in, in 1 Samuel 24. In 1 Samuel 24, verse 16 through 19. Now it happened that when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, and what David had just said, he said, Saul, look, I don't understand this. I love you, Saul, I, you, but you're treating me like a dog. He said, I haven't done anything to you. But yet you are, he said, and there's been times that I could have killed you and I didn't do it. And so in verse 16, now it happened when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? Then Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I. For you have dwelt, dealt well with me while I have dealt evil with you. And you have declared today that you have done good to me, that Yahweh surrendered me into your hand, and yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? May Yahweh therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. That is the example of what Paul is talking about there in Romans chapter 12. When he says do good to them and heap burning coals. That's what David, David did good to Saul and Saul acknowledged. He said, David, I don't deserve what you've done. I don't deserve the goodness you've shown me. I don't deserve the mercy you've shown me. 
That's what that is to be the intended effect of doing good to those that persecute us. And not only are we not to avenge ourselves, but but we are to do positive good to our enemies. Is this impossible? Is it impossible for us to do this? Yes. Unless I present my body to as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. Because you know what I'm doing? You know what Paul's telling me to do there? He's saying, if you truly believe you were dead in your sin, and you truly believe that God, through nothing but grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, saved you. Not because of anything good you've done, but just simply because he's God. If you truly believe that, he says your life's going to be different. Your life is going to be one that shows that I have given myself over to Christ and I'm not conformed to this world. I'm being transformed by the renewing of my mind, staying in the Word of God, reading the Word of God, meditating on the Word of God, memorizing the Word of God, but most importantly, obeying the Word of God. Being a doer of the Word and not a hearer only. And so Paul says that, that, that this is not impossible for us to do this. Love in the church and love in the world, there are, there are demands of commitment. But our minds have been renewed. Our lives have been transformed. And the Holy Spirit who lives within us can do all things. He's God. And if you are a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, He lives in you. So to, say, to look at God and say, I can't do this. God says, I know. But I can. If... You present your body to me as a living sacrifice. You know, one of the buzzwords in the church today is the word commitment. It's way overused. And I'll tell you why. Because you see, if I say, if I tell you, come, make a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, I am calling on you to do something you can't do. Plus, even if you could do it, it's an action you take on your part. And therefore, you have room for boasting. But if I say to you, surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Recognize that you have no hope. You have nowhere to go. You have no friend. To be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God, John tells us. We surrender. That's what Paul's saying. He says, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourself before him, saying, here I am. Have mercy on me, O God. Have you done this? Do you know this morning that Jesus Christ is your Savior and your Lord? By the way, he can't be one without being the other. Don't get the idea that, that, that you can be your Savior and be your Lord some other time. If He's not Lord now, He's not Lord ever. And if He's not Lord of all, He's not Lord at all. So I ask you this morning, do you love the people of God? Do you, you look around this room right now, and there's some that are not here, you know who they are, but do, when we 
as members of this local body of believers, do we truly love one another to the point, listen, to the point that I will give you anything I have that you need? Do I love you like that? I hope so. I'm trying. But I want to tell you something. In Christ, yes, I can. And so can you. What about the world outside? What about that, that neighbor, that co-worker, that family member that mocks what you believe, that, that laughs at what you believe, that rejects what you believe, that goes out of their way, that just for the simple reason that you're a follower of Christ, they seek to do nothing but harm to you. Do you get on your knees and pray for them? Do you do good to them? You know, I remember my, my daughter one time, and I don't want to tell you, I've heard other people talk about this. I've heard my wife talk about this instance in her life. My daughter was about 16 years old, and yeah, that was a fun time. And I remember she looked at me one time, and she said, I hate you, Daddy. And I said, you know what? I love you. Oh, man. That just went all over her. That made her so mad she couldn't see straight. But you know what? She knew I meant it, and I knew she didn't. We need to pray for one another and love one another, but we also need to recognize that if we're going to reach the world for Christ, if we're going to take and proclaim the message of the gospel to a people that are lost and on their way to hell, you know how Jesus brings people into the kingdom of God? He loves them into it. And that's the only way we can do. Speak the truth in love. But we have to remember two things right there. We must speak the truth. But it must be in love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning, O oh God. Thank you that when we were dead in our trespass and sins, Father, that you have made us alive in Christ. And I pray that if there's one listening, Father, that does not know Jesus Christ, that they are still dead in their sins, that, Father, that today you might raise them to new life. And, Father, that you might give them faith to believe that they would come running to Jesus for forgiveness and repentance to be saved. And, Father, for those of us who are followers May we this morning, if we have not done so, commit to present our bodies a living sacrifice because of what you've done for us. Father, help us to love one another as you have loved us. Help us to love those in the world, Father, that they may see the light of Christ and the love of Christ in and through us. May we be diligent and purposeful in what we do. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.